The Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, or EMTALA, requires hospitals to make medically sound efforts to avert deterioration in situations in which a person's health is in danger. The Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization has brought into view the conflict between that requirement and state laws that permit abortion only when a pregnant person's life is in danger. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Sarah Rosenbaum, a professor of health law and policy at the George Washington University Milken Institute School of Public Health. Professor Rosenbaum has co-authored a perspective article about EMTALA and pregnancy-related emergencies. Professor Rosenbaum, could you start by explaining the major provisions of EMTALA? What exactly does it require of hospitals? So EMTALA is a law that dates back to 1986. It was a revolutionary law when it passed, and it essentially sets aside what was long, long a cardinal rule of American law, but what we know as the common law. And that was that healthcare providers owe no duty of care even during emergencies. If they undertake care, they certainly have to do it in a professionally appropriate fashion, but they don't have what's called a duty of rescue. EMTALA changed all of this. And by many people, including myself, it's considered the most important American health law we have. So EMTALA applies to any hospital that participates in Medicare and has an emergency department. And for purposes of this discussion, EMTALA has two critical provisions. The first is a requirement that anyone who comes looking for emergency care has a right to what's called a screening examination. That is an assessment of the patient's health condition and potentially whether what the law defines as a medical emergency exists. And a medical emergency is defined as a condition that threatens not just the life of a patient, but threatens the health of a patient. And the health threat is one that is, in the case of pregnant women, expressed specifically. In other words, they are a named group in the statute. And that's because EMTALA was a response by Congress to a lot of evidence that pregnant women in labor were being turned away from hospitals. If the screening examination, which must be non-discriminatory, it must be the same screening examination that the hospital would give to, say, a paying customer like me. If that screening examination reveals an emergency condition, one that threatens health, then the duty of the hospital is to stabilize. And by stabilize, EMTALA means no material deterioration in the patient's condition. So that is the crux of EMTALA. The stabilization duty lasts until the patient is stabilized and can go home or potentially gets transferred to another facility for more advanced care if such a transfer is needed. But the stabilization requirement is triggered by any health threat. And in terms of stabilizing the patient, the hospital's staff is expected to use good medical judgment. So there's no clinical standard built into EMTALA per se as to stabilization. It turns on the medical judgment of physicians. And how has EMTALA been relevant to pregnant people and pregnancy-related emergencies in particular? Well, as I noted, EMTALA came about as a law because of story after story after story of pregnant women arriving at hospitals in labor 
only to be turned away because they were uninsured or they were not patients of the hospital. There's one very, very celebrated case that happened well before Amtala, but it is one of the most famous of the emergency cases ever in U.S. law in which a pregnant woman in labor was forced by a hospital to give birth in a parking lot. And even once the baby came, it was a very fast labor, and the woman and her sister came back to the hospital seeking after care for her and care for the infant, the nurse met them at the door, handed them a towel and wouldn't care for them. So these incidents were truly shocked the conscience incidents. And of course, there were other cases of people with terrible health emergencies being turned away from Medicare participating hospitals. Medicare, of course, is the single biggest source of funding for hospitals just about. And so Congress finally in 1986 intervened and said, you know, if we're going to pour billions and over time, of course, trillions of dollars into hospitals, we want to know that emergency departments are open. And we are specifically concerned that emergency departments be open and operationally clinically sound for pregnant women. So since the Dobbs decision, lawmakers in some states have pursued abortion bans that include exceptions only for endangerment of life. Can you explain how these policies could clash with the EMTALA requirements? Certainly. So the standard in several of these ban statutes, these state laws that ban abortion, the people, of course, are very, very focused on the fact that what we think of as an abortion that you pursue by choice because you simply would prefer not to have a child or unable to have a child at this time in your life, that those statutes take away that ability to make a choice. But the statutes actually go on from there and attempt to carve out what are increasingly understood to be notoriously limited exceptions to the ban. So situations in which the state will permit an abortion to happen. And in some cases, the state laws are not allowing an exception for rape or incest or both. And in other cases, the state laws, and of course they vary in their wording, but many of them appear to bar any abortion unless the life of the person is in danger. And of course, I'm not a physician, but I do know from my physician friends, my health professions friends, that there is a vast difference between a situation in which your health is in danger, seriously in danger, and allowing deterioration to happen to the point at which your life is in danger. And so what is being challenged in these cases by these states is their authority to override this protection in EMTALA and dictate to their citizens that only when the evidence, as they see the evidence, suggests that the patient's life is in danger, will doctors avoid civil or criminal prosecution for performing an abortion. So how has that conflict between federal and state policy played out so far? It's a very good question. So back in the fall of 2021, some of your listeners may remember that the state of Texas enacted what's called a heartbeat statute, meaning the ban sets in as soon as a fetal heartbeat is detected in about six weeks of pregnancy. And the case was litigated all the way up to the Supreme Court, the legality of the heartbeat statute, 
and the court actually allowed the law to take effect even while Dobbs was pending before the court had said that states could essentially wipe out abortion rights. And that um, fact of the Texas law triggered at that point a policy statement from the Biden administration, this was all the way back in September, saying we are reminding all hospitals out there that you have an EMTALA duty if you are participating in Medicare and you have an emergency department. And if somebody comes to you, you have to screen. And if there's a health endangering situation, you have to provide stabilizing treatment. And that treatment in some cases could be an abortion, which can be called for in these sorts of situations. It was kind of an academic exercise then because, of course, Roe v. Wade was still the law of the land. Dobbs hadn't been decided. And everybody kind of blew off the Biden policy or didn't really pay it a lot of attention. And then when Dobbs was decided, of course, the outcry was so immense, the administration began to scramble to come up with all the things that it might do, which are as I'm sure your readers probably are aware at this point, rather limited. But there are a few places where the administration could act. And one of those areas has to do with um, access during emergencies. And so early in July, the administration reiterated, even in blunter terms, what it had said back in September, including a letter directly from Health and Human Services Secretary Becerra, And the letter said, we are reminding you of your EMTALA duties, and we are reminding you that in these cases, abortion may be the stabilizing treatment that is needed. At that point, people were paying attention. Within three days of the letter from Secretary Becerra, the state of Texas had its lawsuit ready to go. They filed a lawsuit arguing that the effort by the federal government to enforce EMTALA violated its autonomy, according to the Supreme Court, to set abortion rules. And within three weeks of that suit, the Justice Department took it on itself as part of its enforcement duties to sue the state of Idaho, whose law is particularly astounding. It literally makes every abortion in the case a felony And the only way a physician can justify the abortion is to become a defendant in what is essentially a homicide case and would have to defend as a defendant in court just life endangerment, much less health endangerment. And so the Justice Department decided very correctly, in my view, that it wasn't going to wait around any longer to get sued by more states. It made its own move. So in that regard, in a related perspective article, Watson and colleagues discuss the ethical issues that emergency department staff may face in states that have these anti-abortion laws. So how should clinicians navigate providing emergency pregnancy-related care in states that are trying to contravene MTALA or to criminalize abortion care, as you say? Yeah, it is. We are at the point where, in my view as a layperson, I'm a layperson, but I'm a lawyer, so I understand what these laws say in the states with bans in place now or states that are about to enact bans. And let's put aside the issue that sort of hangs over all of us, which is the end of a constitutional right to make choices, putting aside medical needs to make certain choices. But here we're talking about two situations, one involving the cases you and I are chatting about and one involving the kind of ethical dilemmas that the other authors are writing about. 
So one kind of case is a case where somebody comes having attempted an abortion that goes wrong. And what do you do in those situations? Well, I will tell you as a lawyer, Mtala says you cannot refuse treatment. So if that means the completion of a pregnancy termination and stopping bleeding and stabilizing the case, you must do that legally. Now, the authors raise the all-important ethical questions for physicians, which is your duty, your duty as a clinician. It doesn't matter that the pregnancy loss is happening because an abortion was attempted. Your duty is to that patient. Your duty is to manage that patient. And your ethical duty is not to disclose any more than you must disclose, which is that the patient was losing a pregnancy and you treated the pregnancy. And of course, that duty will potentially clash with state criminal laws and civil laws that now empower state officials, public officials to march literally or virtually into an emergency department and demand records. So the question for clinicians is going to be, what do you record? What do you explain? What is your duty to shield? And clinically speaking, it is certainly not incorrect to say that the patient was losing a pregnancy and I responded to the loss of the pregnancy. But just like we're talking about Mtala, in our article, this clash between ethical duties and federal and state laws on disclosure is sitting out there as another huge area that the administration is trying to deal with as well. So finally, given all of that, what additional steps do you think can be taken either at the federal level or by individual health systems to ensure that emergency departments can continue to provide appropriate care to pregnant people? I think for reasons of law and the reason of ethics, the only way we are going to surmount the situation we find ourselves in as a country now where it's literally not safe in certain states to become pregnant, it's not safe from a liability point of view to practice obstetrics. The only thing I can think of is that we must have the medical care system, whether because of its legal duties under EMTALA in the case of hospital care or the ethical duties that are in play here, just simply refuse, refuse to comply with the law and begin to see a widespread refusal on the part of prosecutorial officials to enforce the law. I mean, it is the kind of fundamental situation that I don't think anybody in the United States ever dreamed of being in. Meanwhile, of course, the hope is that states that are implementing these extreme limits on abortion will understand and that the courts will reinforce that whatever they might have the power to do in the wake of Dobbs does not extend to violating federal law. This is the law of the land. Congress has the power, according to the Supreme Court, when it wants to, to preempt certain kinds of practices in order to preserve life and the power to preempt certain kinds of state laws that might permit other medical practices. In 2007, the court upheld the power of Congress to outlaw a certain kind of abortion, which means that Congress also has the power to say, you know, in situations where there's health endangerment going on, We're siding with the person whose health is being endangered. But we have, no question about it, a long and terrible period ahead of us in which a Supreme Court that thought it had washed its hands of abortion is going to be embroiled in the most compelling medical care cases we can imagine. Thank you, Professor Rosenbaum.